a week of South Dakota science conversations. From SDPB Radio, it's Monday, May 15th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, conversations about sustainability. We'll hear business leaders with big plans for climate resilient facilities. Which projects will move forward? Where will the next big idea for climate response come from? Then we'll grab the numbers as we look at global warming trends updated this year, plus planting trees and cleaning up rivers, feel-good projects that are essential, evergreen, and maybe even moving ideas forward about how to respond to environmental challenges. That's coming a bit later in the hour. We are broadcasting today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, we are spending all week talking South Dakota science, and today, the science of sustainability. Hodeck is a startup company with roots in South Dakota State University research. They make the food behind your food. For example, their soybean meal for shrimp tries to make shrimp farming more sustainable and affordable. Mark Lukey is CEO of Hodeck. He joined us in February. Mark, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Lori. It's great to be here. Right here in the Sioux Falls studio, and we were talking before we turned on the microphones about being from South Dakota, traveling other places, coming back home, and then reimagining what South Dakota actually is. And this, this company is a great example of that. Oh, it's a great example, and it's really cool to be back in South Dakota and actually back to my roots. I grew up on a farm just north of Brookings, and so to come back and actually work on agricultural research here in the state is just phenomenal. Yeah, tell me a little bit about this company, and then I want to talk about the name change pretty quickly, but the basis, the foundation of Prairie Aquatech and the research that sort of led to it, where, what's the origin story there? Well, I had the good fortune of partnering with two university professors at South Dakota State University, uh, Dr. Bill Gibbons, who's an industrial microbiologist, and Dr. Mike Brown, who's an aquaculture nutritionist. And here about 11, 12 years ago, they were trying to solve the problem of no more fish meal, or fish meal being a very flat supply. And fish meal is the number one ingredient that's going into global aquaculture production. So if your main ingredient going into seafood that we eat on a day-to-day basis is flatlining, what are we going to do from South Dakota to try to impact that? And so they look, looked at the crops that we grow here in South Dakota, like soybean meal, mm-hmm. uh, corn, uh, so distillers grain from ethanol, you know, from ethanol production, and they said, how can we make those more nutritious, more digestible, so that fish want to eat more of the things that we grow here in South Dakota, and not just things that we farm from the ocean? And that's really how the company got started. Why change the name to Hudek now? Tell people what Hudek means. <laughs> <laughs> so for those that don't know, Hudek is actually the state soil yeah. of South Dakota. And so it was very appropriate because all of all the things that we start with, um, whether it's corn or soy, it's all coming out of the soil that uh, the, the farmers use to grow crops here, right here in South Dakota. And then we subject those to further processing uh, to make the ingredients higher value for downstream markets. And so as when we were first getting started and focused on the aquaculture market, Prairie Aquatech made a lot of sense. It was a great name, and we're going to retain that name going forward. Uh, but as we started to test the, the process, test the ingredients in new markets like dog and cat food, uh, there are significant um, issues with dog and cat food uh, in, in terms of making them more hypo- hypoallergenic because, sure. you know, sometimes our dogs and cats, you know, they suffer from a lot of the same things that people do. Mm. 
And then we also began testing it into human food. And so as we started testing all of these different markets, uh, Prairie Aquatech became uh, a more narrow um, uh, focus, a more narrow name, and we had to broaden that. And so we thought, why not Hudeck? Uh, you know, it's a state soil. It. It's where our crops come from. Plus, there's a band called Hudeck. I'm going to put you guys together serendipitously <laughs> right. and say there's a theme song in here somewhere. There's website music. I don't know. Absolutely. You all will figure that out. Um, what kind of soybean do you need? I mean, let's talk about the, the origins of ingredients and, and, and what makes a healthy input. Absolutely. So it's literally the soybeans that are coming out of our South Dakota farmers' fields today. And, and it's, it's great because we have a good partner in South Dakota soybean processors that removes the oil, and then they send the meal, the remaining meal, the protein, to us. And then we ferment that, that remaining protein and upcycle that into a much higher value product. Now, when you look at going into different markets geographically, for example, Europe, Europe requires non-genetically modified soybeans. And okay. so that's a very specific type of soybean that we ask farmers to grow on our behalf so that we can process that and satisfy the Norwegian Atlantic salmon demand um, in, in Europe, just to meet their regulatory requirements. Yeah, this is my little mind-blowing moment, the Norwegian <laughs> Atlantic salmon demand here in South Dakota, soybean farmers. Yeah. Um, how did, from that research stage mm -hmm. to a viable company, what were some of the you know, signposts, the stepping stones, the big things that you needed for support. Was it like a policy thing? Was it an incubation? Tell me how you get from from there to where you're at now. It really was an incubation period. And okay. obviously it takes private investment when you're trying to commercialize university research. And so we had set up a number of labs in uh, the Brookings area to try to do the work that we need to do to scale up the fermentation technology. And uh, we, we got to about 2013, 2014, and realized that we needed a larger pilot scale facility. So we partnered with Brookings Economic Development Corporation to actually uh, write a grant and construct that facility. Uh, and, and that really gave us an opportunity to, to scale up the technology from where it was kind of at the university bench scale. And then once we had it scaled up and we took a lot of the risk out of the technology development, we were able to go ask for more uh, private investment dollars to build a very large facility that we built in Volga, South Dakota. And, yeah. and that's a 30,000 ton per year facility. All right. Tell me a little bit about partnership with uh, producers, with farmers, with Volga residents, with scientists, with lawmakers. Um, your job has to include a lot of explaining the science that a lot of people aren't going to ever really understand, but you need to be able to communicate it in a way that gets them to see the vision and make an investment or pass a bill or what have you. Talk a little bit about your job in just the communication aspect of it. Well, Laura, you hit just about every one of my constituents yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in your question because it, it really does. Um, it took state lawmakers um, you know, the, 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 the courage to invest in research to begin with because if not for that investment in research at our public universities, you know, this, this idea doesn't ever uh, see the light of day. And so that was kind of the first key component. And, and so you go back and, and you help those. Uh, first of all, you thank the legislator, uh, legislators for the investment that they make, mm -hmm. and you go back and, and update them on progress. Now, the other thing that we're trying to do here from South Dakota was we're, we're trying to add value to the crops that our farmers are growing. Because, you know, we can grow soybeans, we can grow corn, uh, but until you had the ethanol industry, you know, we weren't making the highest value use out of our corn products that were coming out of the field. Or until you create a, a soy processing facility, you're not creating the highest value uses. So we're just taking one step further 
and trying to help our farmers understand that if you grow certain varieties of soybeans, for example, that are non-genetically modified, there are markets out there globally that will pay you a premium for growing those products. And so there, there's a constant educational process that's happening to make sure people understand we can solve a lot of problems from South Dakota, but we've got to know what's going on in the world around us to, to, to solve those problems. There was a real sense, I think, um, during the, the height of the pandemic that 3M in, I think, Aberdeen, gosh, unless I, you know, brain locked that out of my head, I think it's in Aberdeen, but the South Dakota 3M plant was ma making masks and people working 24-7. From a supply chain standpoint um, and sustainability standpoint, what's the potential for just... I don't know, community pride. Is that a softball question? <laughs> it's, it's Monday, and I'm, like, inspired by this story, so forgive me. But just that people can get behind this. Yeah, no, yeah. everybody can get behind this because it, it truly does. It involves, um, it involves our research that's happening right here in South Dakota. It involves our number one industry, agriculture. And we're taking, you know, products that, you know, would otherwise just, you know, stay here domestically at a lower value. And we're shipping those literally all over the world. Eighty percent of our products are being shipped internationally today. And they're literally solving global problems. Mm -hmm. That's Mark Lukey, CEO of Hodak. That conversation is from February. More South Dakota science after the break. You're on listener supported SDPB radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Jevo Incorporated wants to build a net zero one facility for sustainable aviation fuel near Lake Preston. Earlier this year, we caught up with Tony Wells. He's general manager and net zero one site leader to talk about big plans for a big project. I've got 35 plus years experience as an engineer in everything from uh, engineering design to construction to startup and, and uh, operating large facilities. Uh, for example, I was part of the design uh, construction startup team at uh, Wapakoon, North Dakota back in 96. I've uh, been grinding corn for, you know, as I said, 30, 35 years, uh, building plants for uh, food ingredients, for ethanol, for biodiesel, and now for sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, but to your point, it is a very large project, uh, but uh, like any project of size, uh, you have to put the right organization in place. You have to have uh, strong, solid partners that you can uh, rely on with you know, good uh, experience and great balance sheets. And, uh, and then you put the uh, engineering and the plan together and, and you execute. So uh, we've been in that engineering process now for well over a year and uh, we're just about ready to pop out the back end with the beginning of construction. All right so this plant is about what? Is it about supporting America's energy transition? Is it about um, the climate? Tell us what it's about big picture. Well I, I'm not a politician I'm an engineer but uh, uh, there is there is a uh, effort that was spearheaded by the president to generate sustainable aviation fuel, low carbon uh, aviation fuel to uh, replace uh, as much of the fossil based, the fossil fuel based uh, sap or aviation fuel as possible. So I, I think the, the goal that the president put in place is 3 billion gallons by 2030. Uh, GEVO 
has taken on a third of that as our strategic goal of a billion gallons per year of sustainable aviation fuel by 2030. Uh, Lake Preston is our net zero one plant, and uh, in, in, in that naming, it, it's the first of many in our uh, effort to achieve that billion gallons by 2030. Yeah, how proprietary or how advanced is the technology that goes into creating sustainable airplane fuel? Well, uh, so most of the technology units are uh, not novel in themselves, and that's good. That means okay. uh, the project in that sense is low risk. Uh, the integration of these modules so that you can achieve uh, low to no additional carbon footprint when you process this corn to sap fuel that's where the magic is. There's a lot of integration uh, of heat between the hydrocarbon plant and the ethanol plant, and I can explain more about our process in a moment, yeah. I guess, but yeah. uh, we're, we're using wind energy to uh, as the power source for the plant. We're using renewable natural gas for uh, quite a bit of our thermal needs, and we're partnering with uh, Summit um carbon sequestration pipeline as a way to capture our CO2 and sequester it as well. So there's a lot that goes into making it a net zero plant uh, that, you know, greatly increases the capital requirement uh, for a plant such as this, but the units themselves are not, um, are not novel and, and shouldn't uh, cause a, a, a risk from a technology perspective. Sure. All right. So I do want to ask how this works, but before we get to that, um, again, you're not a politician, not necessarily asking you about the president or our governor, but uh, Governor Noem did mention, you know, highlighted this work in her State of the State address. Um, and so talk a little bit about why South Dakota, what kind of business climate, um, you know, sort of brings a project like this to a place like South Dakota? Well, so it is a, a, a corn all the way to a, a sustainable aviation fuel plant. And uh, corn will be our largest cost as, a, as an input into the facility on a, on a daily basis, ongoing basis. So um, one of the things that attracted us to South Dakota, and specifically Lake Preston, was the uh, pool of low basis corn that was available and has been available year upon year. In fact, it's, it's been increasing over the years. So uh, that called 40 to 50 mile radius uh, around Lake Preston is, um, is long on corn, and that's, uh, that's what we need. So uh, in of itself, that area uh, looks really advantageous. We, uh, we also were able then to locate on a, a really nice piece of rail owned by the RCP&E mm -hmm. that gives us access to three class ones so that we can rail our SAF product to really pretty much anywhere in the United States um, effectively just from that site. So uh, the, the corn was the biggest driver, but you know there was other drivers as well. For example, the ability to actually have wind energy located close to the plant that we can directly connect to the plant uh, for regulatory reasons uh, was a big part of it. The rail was a big part of it. So um, 
uh, we worked with the state and we got a, a, a good set of incentives to, to help us to uh, lubricate the process, if you will, to get the project started. And uh, uh, so far, so good. I'm going to read here from, because uh, I want to talk about the farmers and the producers. Uh, from GIVO's promotional material, it just says, Farmers succeed using climate-smart ag techniques to improve yield, sequester carbon, and grow their operations. So one of the concerns when something big has to do with corn around here is um, always, uh, you know, are we just, or do we plow out more acres? Or, how, you know, how do we increase that yield to sort of meet the demand? So tell me a little bit about what in this context, climate smart ag techniques means. What kinds of requirements, what kinds of incentives are there for farmers to work with uh, your plant? Okay, so we're getting a little bit over my head when it comes to climate smart practices, but I, I can tell you that uh, a large majority of the farmers in and around Lake Preston already use uh, climate smart uh, ag practices. Okay. And one of the uh, concerns or maybe objectives that we have is to use our uh, Verity blockchain um, uh, process to capture all of the activities that the farmers are doing that actually reduce carbon um, in, in the soil. And, and those practices have value. And uh, as we work with uh, different um, markets, for example, the California market with California Air Resource Board and the LCFS, uh, Low Carbon Fuel Standard, uh, we would like and hope that they will start recognizing those, uh, those practices that the farmers are already doing, and that will accomplish two things. That will help us lower the carbon intensity score of our product, which is good for the marketplace, good for uh, both GIVO, but it's also then good for the farmer. Because secondly, then the farmer can actually benefit financially from those practices, which they don't necessarily benefit from today. Yeah. So uh, it'll give visibility uh, to those farm practices and uh, you know, right now, I think we're working with about 19 to 20 local farmers around in that 01 plant uh, in a, a four-year study to you know, measure and document and quantify the amount of uh, carbon that is uh, able to be sequestered. So that's about 50,000 acres and about 19 farmers that we're working with uh, through uh, South Dakota State University to um, uh, to validate those practices from a carbon perspective and share them with the different uh, markets like uh, California Air Resource Board. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Tell me about the plant. What is interesting about how it works that you think people will really um, get excited about? Well, um, some of the things I think are you won't be able to see <laughs> uh, when, you, when you drive by the plant, but I can describe a little bit about what they should see. And I, I think there's a nice visual aid that's been uh, floating around since our uh, groundbreaking that does a pretty good job of, of uh, highlighting what that plant's going to look like. So uh, the plant's about two miles east of uh, Lake Preston, uh, just just to the north of Highway 14 and just to the south of the uh, Lake Preston Lake and the uh, RCP&E Railroad. So w 
we'll have the equivalent of a 100 million gallon per year ethanol plant on the far east side of the whole complex. So in, in South Dakota and most of the Midwest, most people know what an ethanol plant looks like. So there, there really won't be any, any surprise to what that looks like. There's 100 million gallon ethanol plants you know, all over the place in South Dakota. Yeah. On the western side of the complex, there will be uh, a lot of towers, you know, distillation columns, reactors, things like that, which, which are the, uh, in aggregate, make up what we call the hydrocarbon side of the business. So we'll make ethanol on one side, we will take that ethanol, and then we'll run it through a series of processes to convert that over to a sustainable aviation fuel. And then the magic in between that you can't really see is all of the heat integration, which is very expensive to do, uh, to uh, drive the uh, thermal energy footprint of the plant down significantly, almost 50, 50% uh, beyond what it would be if they were two standalone units. Uh, you know, so that, that's magical using wind energy and having that connect directly to the plant. That's, that's new and different and on a scale that's never been done before. Yeah. And, uh, and then we're using RNG from our uh, northwest Iowa uh, dairy uh, RNG facility to uh, uh, provide for m much of the thermal needs of the plant. So uh, a lot of thought has gone into that. Uh, and um, with the incentives that are out there for low carbon fuels, especially SAF, uh, it, it allows us to be able to uh, afford that level of capital and integration that uh, um you know, otherwise, an ethanol plant might struggle to be able to do. So does sustainable airplane fuel already exist? Is it in planes? Will it be in planes at some point? Help us figure out that, that to market aspect of this. So we've, we've been making uh, sustainable aviation fuel as a combination of our uh, demonstration facility um, at Laverne, Minnesota, mm -hmm. where we can make ethanol and isobutanol as a precursor, and then we ship that down to Silsby, Texas, where we have a, a unit with the uh, hydrocarbon processes in it to, to turn it into sustainable aviation fuel. That fuel has been um, used in the Air Force and many of the uh, commercial airlines, uh, both as a, uh, as, a, as a test perspective and to actually give them uh, some gallons to lower their, their carbon scores. Uh, but that's really not a commercial scale. It's borderline commercial, but it's nothing compared to uh, what we're going to be doing at Lake Preston, which will be full commercial scale. And your net... So, so the, the, market is, the market has already utilized sustainable aviation fuel. It's basically a, uh, the same um, chemistry as the uh, petrochemical version, just without the impurities. Okay, okay. And um, net zero, that's not just a title or a name, uh, to help people understand how you measure that, how you achieve it. So the, the corn is already scored with a carbon intensity score. Uh, unfortunately, it's a high score, but uh, uh, we, we hope to, to remedy that or, or be part of the group that helps remedy that. And I spoke, spoke about that earlier, but the, the corn comes in with its own carbon intensity score. Okay. Everything we're doing between corn and sustainable aviation fuel um, is 
is designed and heat integrated and with processes I've already talked about so that the score of the bath coming out has no additional carbon footprint mm, okay. uh, added. Okay. And in fact, if, if uh, sustainable uh, farming practices are scored properly, we, we actually uh, significantly reduce the, the final score of the finished product. So the plant itself will add no, no additional carbon. So it, it's net zero in terms of additional carbon added to the sustainable aviation fuel. And then once the farming practices are, are recognized, then that brings the whole uh, scoring of the final product down even further. Oh. Sir, that is complicated. <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right. So what do you want to leave listeners with to sort of get their minds around what this means to have this kind of first-of-its-kind plant um, here in, in Lake Preston, near, near Lake Preston in South Dakota? Well, I- yeah, go I, I ahead. think sometimes talking about dollars yeah. uh, is is a way to help people understand size, impact, and uh, a study was done before I joined the company. In fact, um, on the economic in, impact that, uh, that South Dakota, but more the region and the local economies will um, realize as as a uh, as a building this plant and getting it running and, and profitable. And that number appears to be over $500 million a year of economic impact. And that's, you know, that's jobs, that's increased to the corn basis, it's taxes, you name it. So a couple more numbers that might stick out is, you know, the plant itself, when it's running um, state state normal operations, should employ uh, 90, maybe, maybe a few more than 90 full-time employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, but during construction, uh, we could expect easily as many at peak of a, of a thousand tr- different people of, of various trades working at the same time. So there will be some opportunity to work with some of the local communities about how do you how do you handle a temporary influx of, uh, of uh, construction workers like that. The, um, the capital, uh, the capex as we call it, but the capital to, to build the plant is north of $800 million. And then uh, on top of that, the, the wind and the hydrogen facilities to support the plant are easily another $200 million. So, you know, just those numbers right there alone are topping a, a billion dollars of investment yeah. uh, for this facility. That's, that's pretty significant and, and, uh, ju- and justifies why the impact for the, uh, for the surrounding community is over $500 million a year. All right, I'm from here. You know this place well. I'm going to take us back to the beginning. What are you worried about? <laughs> You're like nothing. <laughs> You've got well, this under control, but to me, it seems like like I'm trying to get my mind, Tony, around like how could this happen in South Dakota? It's that it's that big. So, what are you worried about? Uh, well, you know, I, I think the economics uh, definitely support the project. Um, the it, it will be a bit of a challenge to manage to a low carbon score on fuels. Uh, you know, I have to have to be able to manage the wind energy versus grid energy, the RNG versus uh, natural gas, and things like that. And one of the big levers that we have to help us on carbon score is carbon uh, capture and sequestration. Yeah. Uh, we've uh, 
we, we've partnered or uh, uh, partnered, I guess is the right word, with uh, Summit. Yep. And uh, and we hope to be able to capture the CO2 coming out of our fermenters, put it in uh, into a pipeline, and then sequester it in the, in the ground up in North Dakota. Uh, so we're very interested uh, in the outcome of uh, some of the legislative action that's going on now, and I think some of it comes ahead next week. <clears throat> and we're not the only ones that are interested in that. Every virtually every ethanol plant would benefit from being able to capture the CO2 and put it into uh, uh, caverns in the, in the earth up in North Dakota. And uh, so we got our eye on that because that definitely helps us operationally to, to manage those scores that are important to our uh, income stream. Climate-resilient initiative will move forward, of course, but the need is urgent. Climate researchers from NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration released their annual assessments on global temperatures back in January. We talked with climate scientist Allegra Legrand for an update. I work at NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, and one of the original records of global temperature actually came out of this laboratory uh, back in the late 70s and early 80s. And it was important because at that time, it was just at the dawn of the satellite era, and we hadn't done a great job of collating all the records all around the world yet. So Jim Hansen, the director, uh, he, he put together uh, a record of what global temperatures were like, and this allowed us to get a very broad view of what was happening with global climate through time. So every year, uh, we repeat uh, this exercise where we look at how the temperature this year compares to a baseline period. Uh, we chose 1950 to 1980, and we see year to year if there's been any kind of temperature change. And what we've seen is the last decade especially has just so much warmer than any other time in this long instrumental record, which goes back to 1880. Where do we compare on the hottest year on record right now? So this last year, 2022, is a statistical tie for 2015 for the fifth warmest year on record. It's 0.89 degrees Celsius, if you, anyone's counting, uh, which is that times two is uh, uh, in Fahrenheit, so about 1.6 degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than the 1950 to 1980 average. And... Uh, really, though, if you look at the last uh, 10 years, the nine of the hottest years of that entire 140-year you know, record were in the last 10 years. And the last eight years especially 
have all been more than a degree uh, uh, temperature uh, shift above the late 19th century. So really quite, quite warm. So we're talking to South Dakota Public Broadcasting, a lot of um, strong interest in agriculture. And of course, extreme weather events affect us like everybody else, but also affect our ag production and our growth. Tell me how this global warming shows up in people's lives with, with a mind to those South Dakota listeners. So I, I'm sure that folks, um, you know, probably your, your grandparents use something like the old farmer's almanac. And this tells you like when the last freeze is, when it's a good time to start planting, uh, when it's uh, you know safe to start doing different uh, kinds of agricultural activities. And uh, those old farmers' almanacs were actually quite good at, at recommending these things because they looked at the historic temperature and the historic uh, last snowfall and the historic rainfall to give you know good recommendations so that you could have the best kind of, of farm possible, right? But the way that worked was it, it looked really at his history, like how things have been in the past. The problem we're in now is that climate is not staying true to its history. We're, we're changing. That's why it's so significant that each year is, you know, the hottest year. That means that this, this year, this last decade, wasn't like the 30 years before it. And when you're trying to figure out what to do on a farm, that's a huge, huge uh, problem because, it, you know, it's money, it's your, your life. And uh, you really need to have a stable climate to know what you should be doing next year. So aside from getting warmer temperatures, you can get more extreme rainfall. Uh, you can get uh, outbreaks, of, like huge uh, snowfalls like um, we had here in upstate New York. We had just huge amounts, like several feet of snow falling in Buffalo, a place that doesn't usually get that extreme amount of snow. Um, Buffalo, of course, is a, a big city, but between Buffalo and New York, that's very agricultural. So we have a, a similar kind of issues going on here or getting, you know, uh, big uh, rainfalls, strong thunderstorms, disruptive uh, tornado kind of activity that happens uh, during the spring seasons. Those can be really, really disruptive to agricultural activities. Talk a little bit about the new NASA satellites and the infrastructure to continue gathering this information. Like we were talking about before, uh, you know, NASA just got into the space studies. We started making these global temperature records at the dawn of the satellite era. That used to be really hard because these temperature records are discrete. Like somebody is sitting in New York, someone else is sitting in Chicago, someone else is sitting in South Dakota, and they're making these temperature records and they're making these precipitation records. And to comp combine them all together, you still have great big holes of data in between. And the satellites are really special because they take a step back and they really give you that global perspective of what's going on everywhere, even places where there aren't people actively on the ground recording the temperature or recording the rainfall. And so uh, satellites, they really provide this very good, broad record of what's going on globally. And it's really important to have continuity of satellites because if you have gaps in data, that's information that you just can't get back again. Mm -hmm. I was listening this morning to Morning Edition and um, heard that the emissions from the United States went up last year. It doesn't seem like we're making the connection between the data and policy. Yeah, it's. Uh, I saw that. That also, it's it's really tough um, thinking about you know ways to cut down on greenhouse gas emissions. It it involves making big uh, lifestyle changes. 
uh, that, you know, not only do you have to have, you know, personal level of commitment, but, you know, everybody's a society has to get together and decide that that's something important that they want to do. Um, but, uh, I, you know, hopefully uh, we'll have policies and a lot of personal initiatives that that's the direction that we'll start going in the future. You can see the findings for yourself online at nasa.gov. Up next, planting trees and cleaning up rivers. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lord Walsh. We're spending the week talking South Dakota science, and today we're looking at different ideas about sustainability. The city of Brookings is reinvesting in its environment. Its urban forest initiative has continued for three years now. Josh Bowman is the interim assistant director of the Parks, Recreation, and Forestry Department in the city of Brookings. We spoke with him in April. Yes, so the Urban Forest Initiative is something uh, we're going in our third consecutive year doing. It was just a a program we put in place uh, to help with the health and sustainability of the the Brookings trees. Um, The city of Brookings has been recognized as a Tree City USA by the Arbor Day Foundation uh, for over 40 years now. And this was just kind of a way to help protect and sustain uh, the forest that we have here in Brookings for our community to enjoy. Yeah, our West River listeners and our friends in the Black Hills National Forest are saying, that's adorable. You have an urban forest, (laughs) East River, nice try. But trees in a city like Brookings, in a city like Aberdeen, Watertown, Sioux Falls, Vermilion, Yankton, I mean, this is incredibly important, the kind, the, the, uh, the diversity of trees, the location, the placement. What does it mean for a city to have, um, to have trees, to have what would be considered urban green space? Uh, it's huge for cities to have uh, whatever green space they can. And uh, putting in trees, uh, they play a crucial part in that uh, with reducing energy costs for homes and businesses, uh, removing air pollutants, absorbing, absorbing traffic noise, uh, the increase it can provide for property values. Um, and just there's been studies that have shown that uh, trees can play a huge role in increasing your physical and mental health. Uh, so the more trees that you can get in an urban environment, um, the better it is, uh, the more habitat you create. Uh, it's just good all around for, for people and the environment. I'm guessing for people who planted trees last year, not all of them survived this winter, and the um, ravenous appetites of rabbits and other creatures who needed bark in the snow. Uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit about um, ongoing efforts and replacement of trees, especially this voucher system. Let me know what that's all about. Yes, so um, I'll say through the system so far, uh, 271 trees have been planted through uh, this initiative that we've done. Uh, This year we rolled out a voucher system, uh, so individuals, uh, City of Brookings residents, they will come into our office, they'll pick up vouchers. Um, Each uh, household can get uh, two vouchers. Um, You can do two trees. Each voucher is worth up to $125 in value. Uh, anything above and beyond that would be covered by the homeowners. Um, but then they can go out to our participating vendors uh, and within the community, and they can purchase some trees to plant in their yards. Uh, everything online, um, we have a list online of the trees that are approved for that. Uh, we allow them to be planted on private property uh, in the boulevards. Um, if you do plant a boulevard tree, there is permissions that are needed just to ensure that we're getting the right kind of tree in the boulevard so nothing will impede in the right-of-way. Yeah. Um, what are and, some of the right kinds of trees? I know that we've had an emerald ash borer problem here lately with the ash trees. What, what, what sorts of trees 
or good ideas right now? Yes, so um, ideally we get a good diversity planted. Um, you've got elm trees, uh, maple trees, uh, honey locusts, lindens. Uh, we've got a number of uh, evergreens that you can look at planting, uh, crab apples, um, and then a number of other fruiting trees. Uh, you know, the, the more of the fruiting trees we like to keep on private property um, just because it can impede the right of way. Uh, but there's, when you get out to the nurseries, there's so many different cultivars coming out every year. Uh, that really it's it's easy to get a good diversity of trees and make sure we're not planting a monoculture anywhere where when we do have emerald ash borer uh, show up it, it does cause those issues of, of losing a good majority of your trees that um, have many years of life that they've put in um, you lose a lot with that when you lose a mature tree yeah i'm thinking of some of the policy conversations we're having about earth day and the origins of earth day and and arbor day and planting trees seems to still be my fingers are crossed, a non-political thing to do, plant a tree. Have you found like a lot of support in getting the funding and the policy and people can get behind this without necessarily descending into <laughs> arguing <laughs> about uh, anything? Everybody loves a tree, yeah? yeah? Or am I wrong? No. Here? Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, you don't get much kickback when you tell everybody you want to plant some trees. Um, that's something that everybody is for. Uh, Arbor Day, Earth Day, two big events. We get a lot of groups out, um, especially with Earth Day, that want to start doing cleanups for us. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, with this program, being able to get people to not only... Um, so our forestry department plants trees along the boulevards. We do about 300 trees a year. And yes, we did lose a lot this year with the extra snow to the rabbits and stuff. Uh, so people are having to, to ramp up their efforts to protect those trees. Uh, but every year, our forestry department uh, is planting about 300 trees. Uh, we have an EAB management plant plan in place um, for when that gets to Brookings. Uh, so just yeah. being able to get these trees in, on private property as well as in boulevards to help ensure that this forest stays is huge. And we, you know, we get a lot of support out of those uh, out of those practices. Yeah. Take a walk down to the river not far from our studios here in Sioux Falls where the Big Sioux River winds through the town and heads over the rocks at Falls Park. Ahead of Earth Day this year, we talked with Travis Entman. He's managing director of Friends of the Big Sioux River. We talked to him about cleaning up the river for Earth Day, but also about a more sustainable South Dakota. Take a listen. 
I, I remember, as I said, um, being a kid and loving the river. I think anybody who grows up near a river has a relationship with it. Um, obviously, spring comes, you're pulling out tires, garbage, diapers, disgusting things, and the average, you know, sticks and yeah, plastic bags and, and things. That, but it's more than that. It's more than just a daily cleanup. It is a relationship. Tell me a little bit about what, what people should invite themselves to do when they live at the heart of a river. Yeah, so a, a cleanup event is a good way to, you know, do a quick... Um, improvement of your water body but what it really does is it grows that relationship you're actually getting into the water you're getting yeah. into the muck and you're understanding what's really happening along the banks of the river but inside of the river and really that starts fostering a a, a want to take better care of it because in reality you know cleanup events are great and you get the trash out of the river and we need to do that but at the end of the day the river is highly contaminated with yeah. e coli pollution um, total suspended solids things like that and that's not necessarily coming from trash. So starting to understand where these pieces of pollution is coming from and what we can do as a community to help solve the issue. So a cleanup event is the first step of getting engaged and caring about the river. But then you bring that to a general awareness of how it's getting polluted and how it impacts your everyday life. And then you start talking to community members, business owners, um, decision makers, lawmakers, and say, this is actually something I really care about and it impacts my day every day especially as we grow in Sioux Falls and in the Big Sioux River watershed. Um, it's a vital asset for us. Um, we get our drinking water from it. Um, we're growing, putting millions of dollars on the banks of it. Um, mm -hmm. Well, let's start taking care of it. Yeah. What are some of the ways from a policy standpoint, knowing what we know about climate change, mm -hmm. go ahead and alarm us if you must. <laughs> um, we'll feel the grief and sure. then we will take action. Sure. It's at risk. It's at risk. Yeah. So, um, from my point of view, the three things that are going to fix the river is policy, regulation, enforcement, and land use changes. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, within the Big Sioux River, the primary land use is agricultural related. And landowners are starting to do um, different agricultural practices that are actually helping water quality. No-till, cover crops, rotational grazing, things like that. They're starting to do that. But they don't have enough resources to make the full change. So getting more regulation, getting more... Um, resources for them to make those changes will have a huge impact but also putting in regulations that help um, clean up the river um, recently there's the the WOTUS um, definition coming through on the federal level maybe looking into that what does that mean for the waters tributaries wetlands of our area but when we have these policies in place actually push our local and state level officials to actually enforce them Give them some teeth. Give them the tools they need to really make sure that water is being protected because everyone has access to water, and that's kind of our right as citizens of South Dakota to have clean, healthy water, not just of a few, for everyone. So it, it will take everyone, but it will really take political will to really impact the health of the river. State of South Dakota, Attorney General, Marty Jackley, Waters of the U.S., Yeah. They're trying to stop it right. legally. It's too restrictive. It's too oppressive. It affects ditches. It's a problem. What's your response to that when we look at the totality of WOTUS? Yeah, there's a couple er areas. So one is just the general lo logistics of what is waters of, of the United States. And um, it's confusing from administration to 
excuse me, from administration to administration, the definition has changed. Right. So it's just kind of confusing for law, er, landowners to follow a guideline that they don't really know what is, constitutes water and what doesn't. Uh, in addition to that, though, um, the Big Sioux River, so the watershed, ev all water that falls on land will go into the water or into the river. Um, so what you do in a tr small tributary miles away from the Big Sioux River will have a direct impact of the Big Sioux River finally getting to the Missouri, Mississippi, and the Gulf of Mexico. So just because you have a wetland or a small tributary, say 30 miles away from the river, you're still going to have an impact. So if we are able to clean the water that is flowing into the river before it gets to the river, you're going to have a healthier river system. So if <clears throat> water is falling under WOTUS, um, is broadened, you're just going to have more water that will impact the river being regulated at a higher level. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. We are spending the entire week talking about South Dakota science. Today we focused on the science and ideas behind sustainability in a time when climate change impacts us all. 